I'm Pastor Steve Lombardo. I'm uh, one of the pastors at, uh, at our church, and um, I'm excited to be here. Always thankful to come here and to preach and share in God's Word with you. We're wrapping up the relationship series where you've seen different people come and go, and also because Pastor Travis is gone right now, um, but it's going to be good to get Travis back and uh, get back into a natural rhythm of life. It's kind of hard having uh, different people each Sunday. I understand that. But if you would, uh, just uh, give me the benefit of the doubt this morning as we're going to go to God's Word. Real exciting passage in Acts that Lloyd just read about the early church. And we're going to talk about community, uh, relationships that happen within the Christian uh, community. And so um, if you got your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be there in chapter 2 and in chapter 4. We'll get there eventually, but bear with me. we got some groundwork to lay uh, as we get started. But I'm going to pray, if you don't mind and ask that the Lord would be our teacher. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we thank you for this day today. We thank you for this gathering. And we come together, Lord, to see you, Lord Jesus. And I ask that you would teach us exactly the things that you would have us to know through your word this morning. Lord, I pray that my words would be forgotten. Anything of me would be forgotten, but just that your word, Lord, would remain. And then we pray your word right now that it would not return void, Lord, that you would uh, bring about something miraculous in each one of our hearts this morning, that we would leave this place changed and changing into the image of Jesus, our Savior. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Each person has a worldview. Um, this is a very diverse group of people here. We'd go out in, the, in and up and down the aisles each one of you would have a different worldview. Uh, for example, about a month ago, do you remember this story? A little kid got down into the uh, gorilla enclosure at a zoo in Cincinnati. Everybody remember that? Now, if your worldview was one of, you know, animals are just the same as humans. Humans are the same, animals are the same, we're just the different parts of the evolutionary chain, then you were really upset that that gorilla got shot. And had to get put down. Now, if you had a different worldview, if you had a worldview that said that animals are part of God's creation, yet people are different because men and women are created in the image of God. If you believe that, then you might be upset that that gorilla was killed, but at, at, the, at the end of the day, you're going to sleep all right because that little boy was all right. Okay. What we uh, think about certain situations in life reveals what our worldview is. And this morning, I'm going to start with this. To cultivate Christ-centered community, we must first understand the culture in which we live. So we're talking about cultivating Christ-like community. We're all together in this life together. We come and gather and worship together in this building at Village Bible Church. How do we develop relationships? How do we live the life that God has planned for us to the best of our ability and for God's glory. First, we've got to understand the culture in which we live. And the culture has various competing worldviews that will seek to grab your attention, and maybe you hold one of these worldviews. Let's talk about four of them. First one is this. First anti-Christian worldview that we deal with in our culture is materialism. Materialism says that possessions are God. Somebody who is a materialist, on the bumper of their car, their bumper sticker would read, He who dies with the most toys wins. 
Everything in life has to do with wealth. Everything has to do with gathering things for yourself. And everything, not just having to do with spending, but also saving. Those are two sides of the same coin for a materialist. That possessions are God. What's the biblical response to this? You have your Bibles, keep a finger in Acts, but then to go to Luke chapter 12. Jesus speaks to this worldview of materialism. Acts chapter 12, starting at verse 15, Jesus tells this story. He says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. See, this man was not just spending. He was saving. He was hoarding. He was building barns to keep all of the stuff that he had. And at the end, God calls this man what? Starts with an F. Ends in ool. He calls him fool. He's a fool. Because life's much more than the stuff that we have. Do you know that all the stuff that you have is just future garage sale junk and landfill? All the things that we own. Materialist. Materialism. says possessions are God. Here's another competing worldview. Second anti-Christian worldview. Hedonism. Hedonism says this. Pleasure is God. The bumper sticker on the back of a hedonist on their car would read, if it feels good, do it. It doesn't matter if it hurts others. It doesn't matter if it, if it even hurts yourself. As long as it feels good in the moment, do it. Enjoy it. Taste it. Touch it. Embrace it. Life is all about the pleasure that I can get. What's the biblical response to this worldview? Turn to Ecclesiastes. We'll see who can find it fastest. Ecclesiastes. Might not be me. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Psalms, Proverbs. Where is it? There it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Sunday school test. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? He's called the wisest man. Solomon. So Solomon, he, he's going to give us some answers. He's, he's tried the hedonist route. He's tried to find pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. 
I made myself gardens and parks and planted in in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had gone before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil that I expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon had it all. He had had the women. He had the work. He had the possessions. He experienced everything. And he says it's all worth nothing. Are you a hedonist? Do you make decisions based on how it's going to make you feel, if it's going to bring you pleasure and enjoyment? Is that how you live your life? Anti-Christian worldview. Third anti-Christian worldview we're looking at this morning is individualism. Individualism. Now, parts of individualism can be good. I mean, it's one of the reasons why America, our country, became so great, because of rugged individualism. The idea that I'm going to pull myself up from my bootstraps, with my bootstraps, I'm going to I'm going to work hard and accomplish something. There can be some good elements of that, of personal responsibility and striving and working hard. But I'm talking about the negative side. The negative side of individualism would say this, I am God. I am God. A bumper sticker would read this, it's all about me. The world caters to this worldview too. So much so, all of the culture around us points to ourselves that we are the most important, that we are special, that I am a snowflake and there's nobody like me. I mean, for example, McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Burger King, have it your way. Facebook just asked me a few minutes ago, what's on your mind, Steve? What's on your mind? I want to post a picture of my toothbrush so everybody can see how wonderful my life is. It's all about me. Hold on a second. Where's my phone? I'm going to take a selfie with you guys. What's the biblical response to this? Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and following. Paul writes about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, he says this, have the same attitude as Jesus Christ, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If anybody came And it was all about him. It was Jesus. And yet Jesus lived his life for others. So much so that David said he gave his blood for you and I. So that we could be forgiven of our sins. So that we could be free from sin. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Have the same attitude as him. 
How about this worldview? It's collectivism or socialism. Once again, I'm not saying that socialism is anti-Christian as a form of government. It's perfectly fine for countries to, to do things in that way. I'm not here to promote capitalism versus... We're not talking about that. We're talking about collectivism, this idea that says this, government is God, or we the people are God. This is the same worldview that the people had when they built the Tower of Babel. We can come together. We're good enough. We don't need God. We can ascend to heaven and build something so big and so great that not even God Almighty can stand up to it. We the people, government. Government is God. Bumper sticker would read this. There's no I in team. There's no I in team. It's funny. Um, Michael Jordan, after winning one of the basketball games, Michael Jordan's from my era, younger people. Sorry, Michael Jordan, after winning a, a game, the best player on the planet was excited uh, that he had won the game for them. And Tex Winter, the assistant coach of the Bulls, uh, the author of the, of the uh, triangle offense, he said to young Michael Jordan, he says, Michael, now remember, there's no I in team. To which Michael Jordan responded, there's an I in win. That has nothing to do with the servant, by the way. I don't know, I just thought of that quote. Um, There's no I in team, but if you don't believe in God, okay, if you don't believe that there's a higher authority that unseen yet we can experience, if you don't believe in God, then then what's the next natural power or authority that you're going to put your faith and hope and trust in? It's your governing authorities. You would look to government for the answers, that they would provide for you, that they would protect you. And according to Scripture, government should do that. Romans chapter 13, government is put in place to protect its people. But when you look to the government for all of the answers, as if a man has all the answers... The spirit of collectivism is anti-Christian to the core. Someone once said this, Politics is the religion of people who don't know God. So as Christians, we obey our governing authorities. We're commanded to do that. And and we we support our government. And we're thankful for our government. and, And we happen to be in a pretty great place, even as you look on the the scale of human history. America is a pretty wonderful place, and we're thankful for it. But if the government goes against God, if the government does something and calls us to do those things that are against the Lord, then we, like the apostles and the disciples in Acts chapter 5, we say we must obey God rather than man. Anti-Christian worldviews. So to cultivate Christ-centered community, we must first understand where we live. Do you find yourself with any of these tendencies? These anti-Christian worldviews? Our worldview must have as its foundation of the Word of God. And you're in the good, a good place for that, Village Bible Church. Our foundation is in the Word. And now we go to Acts chapter 2. which Lloyd read this morning, Acts chapter 2, which sums up the early church. And then Acts chapter 4, we get another summary paragraph. I'm going to read that one and then refer back to both of the texts this morning. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. You got it? 
Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. What an amazing description of a church. As we go through the text this morning, we also look to our church and ask if we're living in community, in relationship to one another, the way that God designed us to. So to cultivate Christ-centered community, secondly, we must observe the characteristics of biblical community. The characteristics. The first characteristic we see in the text is they had mystical unity. Verse 32, they were of one heart and soul. Mystical unity doesn't mean magical, but mystical means uh, that supernatural, that there's something that connects us that is unexplainable. It's not according to the scientific method. There's something mystical about it, and, and that's the unity that the early church had. They were of one heart and one soul. This is what happens when you become a Christian. When you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, have you? When you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, you immediately become unified with Christians all over the world so that your brothers and sisters in Christ are in China right now. That you also become unified with the early church, with the the people we just read about here, believers. We have this mystical unity. When we come together, we join with Christ. We're joined with one another. We're joined, and now in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes this, there's not, not anymore, there's no male or female, uh, slave or free, Jew or Greek, we're all one in Christ Jesus. That's the unity that the early church experienced. That there's nobody better than somebody else, based on anything. Sociopolitical, where you live, where you don't live, the color of your skin, In Jesus Christ, we are all one. One heart, one soul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul refers to this unity as a body. So that we are all part of the body of Jesus Christ. Some are the hands, some are the feet, some are the ears, some are the eyes. We all have different parts to play. We all have different gifts to participate in service in. But we are all one body. In Ephesians, he takes this example as of a building, that we're being built together, all of us, and we're different bricks in this building, but we're all coming together. At the foundation is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation. He's the cornerstone. Then the, the foundation goes up from there, the teaching of the apostles, and then we're built up as a body, a mystical, unified body, a people of God. This is what we experience, this unity, when we come to Christ in faith. Just yesterday, I talked to a man who just got out of the hospital. He's 85 years old. I hadn't seen him for a couple years, but a a month ago, uh, his family called and said that he was in intensive care. And so I went into the intensive care to visit him. He was at a church I used to serve. And even though I hadn't seen him for over two years, we instantly had unity together walking into that room. 
Even though we hadn't talked, we had unity. And even though he's 85 and I'm 38, we had unity. And even though he was a farmer and I live in the suburbs, we had unity. Why? Because of Jesus. And that's, that's mystical unity that we all share with one another. So that this campus is different from Shabana, but we're the same. Sugar Grove is different from El Camino, but we're the same in Jesus. The Spanish-speaking worshipers are the same as us. They're just using different tongue to worship Jesus. Early church, that was one of the characteristics. They experienced it. Second characteristic, missional unity. They experienced missional unity. You see that they were together, one heart and soul. Then verse 33 of chapter 4, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. See that? They were unified with one voice. They're giving testimony of Jesus. That Jesus died for your sin. But not only that, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. Jesus is alive. And even though you will die one day, you can have life after death. That Jesus has conquered the grave for you. And I can go in the hospital room with that man and say, even though he might lose his life today, Jesus found his life. Jesus saves his life for all of eternity. That there's resurrection power in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have this missional unity. We're all on point together. We do things differently. We might have different music. We have different tastes. But at the end of the day, we're on the same page because we serve Jesus Christ who died for me and rose again. And we're unified in that message. And we're telling and we're seeking to tell the world about it to hear this good news of Jesus Christ. So we're together. So that's our discipleship model. Uh, Discover Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus to develop disciples of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. To deploy disciples out into the backyard or around the world to bring the message of Jesus to others and to a world who needs to hear. That's all about Jesus. Missional unity. And if you want to come to church as for a social club, go find another church because it's not a social gathering. It is a ministry where we're missionally united to tell the world that sin is real, but Jesus conquered sin and he's alive today, and you can have life in him. And that's why we gather. That's why the early church gathered. It was a big deal. They had mystical unity. They had missional unity. Third characteristic we see from the text, they had material unity. You see, they are all coming together, and no one had any needs. Why? Because some people were selling. Let's see, does the text actually say this? They were selling lands or houses and we're bringing the proceeds of what was sold to help other people. It's amazing. They cared for one another's physical needs. They actually brought food to people who needed food so that none were hungry. They actually provided housing for people who needed housing so that they would have a roof over their head. The ones that had a lot would give freely to care for others. This is the early church, a description of the early church. Now, this type of care for one another, sharing in material things, is not a governmental program. It is a Christian, a consistent Christian Christian theme throughout all of the Bible and the New Testament. In James chapter 2. James chapter 2 In comparing faith and works, 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? If you say you care for people, when the people are there asking for help, you say, hey, brother, I will pray for you, okay? We'll talk to you later. That's not living out the Christian faith. That's not being unified with one another. If a guy shows up at my house and they're hungry, well, let me just pray that God will provide for you. And then I shut the door and I go back to my fridge and pig out. What's wrong with that? I'm I'm not living as a Christian. I'm not living like Jesus. I'm not giving of myself. The early church had material unity. So these characteristics are amazing. What's going on in the early church? How did the church get there, though? That's, that's my question. Because I want to get there. Do you want to get there? I want to get to this place of unity. I want to be this community. I want to experience these relationships. I don't want to play church. I want to be the church. So how do they get there? Well, first, we see from the text that was read in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. to stop there. How'd they get there? They were devoted. That means they were committed to. That means the church was a priority for them. If we're honest, the church is not a priority for most people. People are not devoted to church. If there's not anything to do on the day, and if it's, and if it's uh, um, I'll be at church if there's nothing to do. If it's a bright, sunshiny day, I can't go to church and be inside. I want to get out and enjoy His creation. If it's raining outside, I can't go out. I can't get wet. There's always an excuse. What if we looked at your checkbook this morning? What would we reveal about who you are and what you think about God? I'm not t- talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about what you spend your money and time on. They were devoted to the church. They were devoted to one another. We're devoted to Netflix. We're devoted to Facebook. We're devoted to our phones. We're devoted to good things like our family. But God's created a greater family to be committed and devoted to. It's this place. So they were devoted to the church. Also, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's the first one. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is why we teach the Bible here at Village. It's because... What we have in the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles. An apostle is one who witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ, who saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the original apostles are the disciples, but then uh, also the apostle Paul, who uh, saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so we have their writings, the teachings of the apostles, and that's what we do when we gather together in public worship. That's what we do when we, kids come and gather for VBS. We tell stories, we have fun, but at the end of the day, we're devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's what they're devoted to. They're also devoted to fellowship. You see that? And to the fellowship. What does fellowship mean to you? What's the first word? It's a church term, okay? What's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word fellowship? Tell me. Help me out. What's the first thing that comes to mind? What's that? 
Potlucks, absolutely. That's what I thought of. I thought of food right away. Food. We don't even have to ask for anymore. That's the one I was thinking of. But fellowship is a lot deeper than food because you see food is, is listed next to the breaking of bread and prayers. And that's also communion. That is a reference probably to communion, but it's also to food. So what's this idea of fellowship? Fellowship is the word koinonia. It's having all things in common. It's the material unity as well. So it's a lot deeper than sharing a meal together, although that is fellowship. It's having things in common with one another, even and despite our differences. What we have in common, we already talked about it. It's the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the missional unity that we experience. And then it's the material unity, having all things in common, koinonia. That is fellowship. And they were devoted to it. To the breaking of bread. You see that listed next. And then to prayers. To the prayers. This is a very easy one to get people convicted of is how's your prayer life because it can always be better right so i'm not going to play the guilt card on that but i'm going to give you three examples of prayers that we need to get deeper than uh, in our life okay the first one is this rote prayers the disciples the early church are devoted to prayers but we can miss the mark if we devote our prayers if they're the rote prayers and only the rote prayers So our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's a great prayer, and Jesus taught us that prayer. So we can say that prayer. Growing up in my church that I grew up in, we said that prayer every Sunday. And I I meant to say said it. We didn't pray it. We said that prayer every Sunday. It became a rote thing. Before I ate meal, come Lord Jesus, be our guest, and let these gifts to us be blessed. Amen. We said that prayer before every meal. Now, rope prayers are fine, and they can have its place in a believer's life, but we've got to get deeper than that. We've got to get to where we're talking to God. How about this? Foxhole prayers. Foxhole prayers. You know what these are? It's when you're in the foxhole, and everything's going downhill around you, and you call out to God for help. Now, praise the Lord that He hears those prayers. He does hear those prayers, but that shouldn't be the limit to how we pray. Just that uh, we call out to God when we need Him or when we need a miracle, and usually it's accompanied by something that you can give God. God, if you just save me from this, then I'll do this. As if God's up in heaven just hoping and wishing you would give Him something. God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll start going to church. Now God does hear foxhole prayers. He does, but that shouldn't be the limit to how we pray. We tend to do that, and then we move on to the next foxhole prayer, and the next foxhole prayer. The third type of prayer that I don't think the church was devoted to was the afterthought type of prayer. This is like when God does come through for you, you're like, oh, man, thanks, God. Now, that's, that's good, but it shouldn't just be limited to a perceived act of God, and that's what gets our prayer. Something good happened. Oh, good. Thanks, God. Our prayer, the Apostle Paul says to pray without ceasing. 
to pray continually. And we know it's not possible to be on your knees 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So what does that mean? It means that we would have an open line of communication between the Lord and ourselves. That we would be talking with Him. That we would be committed to Him. That we would be asking and petitioning Him. That we would be blessing Him and glorifying Him. That we would be crying out to Him in times of need. The Word says that through supplication, let our requests be made known unto God. So it is a good thing. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We bring all to the Lord in an open relationship and communication with Him. So this is what they were devoted to. The teaching of the apostles, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And thirdly, to maintain Christ-centered community, we must deal with the relational difficulties that we experience in a biblical way. Deal with relational difficulties in a biblical way. Because, see, we can get to that place like the early church. We can have this unity. Um, We can get there by being devoted to the right things, but there's lots of stuff that threatens to break up this community to damage the relationships that we have. And, and the biggest one is this, relational difficulties. There's churches that split over doctrine, but really, there's so many different churches to choose from that people pretty much find where they fit in doctrinally and theologically. The biggest problems are the problems that happen between one another and the friction that results from it. In Matthew chapter 18... And it's kind of funny that a couple weeks ago when I was here, we, we talked about this, and we talked about forgiveness. But in Matthew chapter 18, we see Jesus' prescription for dealing with relational difficulties. Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, first, sin is the issue. If your brother sins against you, let me just save you the wondering and say your brother, your sister will sin against you. And maybe some of you are here today and someone in the body has sinned against you. How many people know that you will be sinned against in the church? Two. You know that you'll be sinned against in the church. I'm just going to save you time. You will be hurt. You will be sinned against. The problem, the issue, and the problem that we all have is sin. That ugly thing that we deal with. The thing that Jesus died for. The thing that we can be freed from. But still, it has a place in our hearts that we do battle. And so the problem is sin. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, Jesus says, between you and him alone. If your brother, if your sister sins against you, go to him or her alone. Don't get mad and go tell your friend. Don't post it on Facebook. Don't tweet about it, but maybe not mention their name, but everybody knows what you're talking about. Go to the person alone. And Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Go to that person who probably doesn't know that they've even sinned against you or is aware of it, or maybe they are, but when you go to that person and you say, hey, I feel like I've been wronged in this way. I'd like to talk to you about it. If they listen, you've won a brother. You've won a sister. End of story. 
There's forgiveness. Just like we receive from the Lord, there's forgiveness horizontally as it is vertically. And so we give to one another that forgiveness, and then we've, we've won a brother. We've won a sister. If we would practice this in the church, just this first step, faithfully, I believe that 95% of relational difficulties would disappear. If we are, when we are wronged, when we are hurt, go to the person alone. Now, Jesus goes on, if that doesn't work, which, by the way, I I believe 95% of the time it would work. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here's the biblical way to deal with it. Now bring one or two other people and say, hey, this is not just from me. Um, These are my witnesses here of what has happened. We need to make this right. Now if that doesn't work, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. He refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. There's the hard part of church discipline, which we do practice at Village Bible Church. But if we would practice the first steps, very, very rarely do we get down to the last step of an excommunication of someone who is dealing with unrepentant sin and refuses refuses to hear any truth. We must deal with relational difficulties in a biblical way, Matthew 18, if we hope to maintain Christ-centered community. Okay, conclusion. There's some choices that must be made this morning. I believe that good teaching and preaching calls on a person to make some decisions, to make some commitments. God has brought you here this morning for a purpose and a plan. And there's some choices that you must make today as you seek to live in this community, Village Bible Church. First is isolation or involvement. What are you going to choose? Are you going to be isolated? Or are you going to be involved? Hey, isolation is easier. It's easier to come and just sit and then leave. That, that's a lot easier. It's not as messy. Involvement's messier. Involvement's harder. But it, it's a low risk, low reward, or a high risk, high reward. If you're isolated and you're just content with being isolated... There's not really any risk. It's not that hard. But if you're involved, it's going to be hard. There's going to be relational difficulties, but the payoff is so much bigger. Are you going to be involved here? Scott announced ways that you can be involved to help with your community outreach here. Are you going to be involved in that? Are you going to be isolated? How about this? You can choose today selfishness or service. Selfishness or service. You can see the church as being a place to serve you and your needs. That you would come and you would be fed. That you would enjoy the music. That you would enjoy the time. That you would enjoy the ministries. All the good things that God has provided through the church. That you would just take it all in, consume it. And you could be happy to be a selfish Christian. A fat Christian. One that just takes everything in. Or you can choose to serve. You can take that same blessing that God has given you, you can turn around and be a blessing to others. You can do like Jesus did, who before he gave of his life, in the upper room with the disciples, he 
took a towel and a basin of water, and he washed his disciples' feet, not just because they were dirty, but to show that we are to serve one another. And that the greatest, Jesus, even served the least. That the King of kings and Lord of lords, who was going to his death for the sins of his disciples, washed their feet. You can choose to be selfish this morning, or you can choose to serve. Third choice that you must make, possessions or people. You can choose possessions. You can see this life as just an opportunity to rack up as much in the bank account or or to spend as much as possible, invest your life in things, or you can invest your life in people. You know, there, is, there are things that you can take to heaven. I've always heard that. There's, you can't take anything to heaven. No, there is. You can take relationships to heaven. The relationships that you build today will continue for eternity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is a continuation of life. It's actually more of a new life than now. And the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus at the end is the king of kings. He's right down the street. We're all living under his reign and his rule. And our relationships continue. You can take those. What are you going to invest in? Lastly, you can invest in legalism or love. You can invest in legalism. You're going to choose that. Legalism says you have to do certain things. You have to be a certain way before I accept you. That's easy to do, not trying to do it even. Especially in a community that's diverse. People are very different. Unless those people become like me, I will not accept them. Or are you going to choose love? Love says, I accept them because I love them. God chose love. Do you know that God sent Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners? That's what the scriptures say, Romans 5, verse 8. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God says this, I love you just the way you are. That's what the love of God says. I love you just the way you are because Jesus died for me while I was lost in my sin. Jesus doesn't wait for you to get good and to get cleaned up and then God says, I love you. God loves you just the way you are. Rotten sinner. He loves me. But he loves us too much to leave us just the way that we are. And that when you come into a relationship with him, he desires to change you and to make you into the image of Jesus. You live and love like Jesus. In the same way, church, don't choose legalism, choose love. Love people just the way that they are, trusting that God's doing a work in their life. This is the beautiful thing that we exist in in called the church. To God be the glory for the great things that he has done. And I pray that we would each day be growing into this type of community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the example of your church. In some ways, God, it's uh, kind of, of depressing to read some of the words because uh, we, we can feel so inadequate or, or um, like we're failing in so many different ways. But thanks for the inspiration of your word. Thanks for the model of this church and help us to emulate it and and holy spirit come fill us so that we would have right relationships with one another that we could experience the same type of unity as described in the word this morning that we could 
we would experience mystical unity. Lord, I pray that anyone here who is not trusting the Lord Jesus right now would come to faith this morning and say, I believe, forgive me, Lord Jesus. I want to live for you. Lord, that we'd also then experience missional unity, that you would get us together on point. And even though we do lots of fun things and various things, and those are all good, that, Lord, you would uh, sharpen our, 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 our sight on the goal, the purpose, the mission of Jesus, the gospel, the good news, going out and changing lives right here and around the world. And, Lord, that we would be a people that would experience unity in, in even our material things, Lord. Father, we commit ourselves and this church to you. It's yours. Come and lead us, great shepherd. Lead on, O King Eternal, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.